0: All right, friends, good morning. I hope you are well. Uh oh. Tea's ready. Yeah. God bless you guys. I know there's some of you that wish that happened. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to continue our journey through the book of, or I should say, the letter to the Corinthians from Paul last week. Uh, we focused on kind of the middle verses of uh, 10 through 15. Now, uh, just by review and by remembrance, remember, Paul is writing to a very dysfunctional church, um, similar to all churches. He's just writing to say, Hey, there's some problems that are going on. I know God has great things for you. I don't want you to continue, or Paul nor Jesus is desiring the continuing in those problems, not just out of a righteous crusade, but the reality that. Sin or destructive behaviors, however moral wrong, however we like to label it, it destroys, right? It destroys relationship, it destroys fellowship, it destroys churches, it destroys all sorts of things. And so Paul, through the first three chapters, is, is really harping on the idea of God's wisdom versus Earth's wisdom, right? God's wisdom being in, uh, visible in Christ, that to give up one's life, to uh, yield to the Lord, to... Uh, allow God to work in their hearts allow God to work around them uh, to be mindful of what the spirit is calling them to or leading us to these things that that wisdom prevails and builds god's house whereas the world's wisdom which again uh, whether it's you know slogans like have it your way or just do it or a few good men or whatever it might be this idea that we are uh, we advance god's kingdom or we advance uh, the church or however you want to label it through dominance through uh, politics through you know whatever it might be, and so Paul is saying no that the worldly wisdom, the the wisdom that always puts self first, is a is a wisdom that will always that can never build what God wants to build. Uh, they're trying to you know whether in the church trying to force people to do things or guilt people into do things or you know make yourself preeminent, try to draw attention to ourselves. These these things that they destroy God's work, and so the 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 verses that we looked at last time. Or, um, uh, or I should say the section we looked at last time was essentially uh, Paul saying that all believers are building something, right? The, the, he says, look, I laid the foundation. Now, he's speaking directly of the church in Corinth, right? He was the, there for 18 months. So Paul's speaking of directly of Corinth, but for us also in our church and in the, the church universally, remember, it's just the, the term there is ecclesia, or called out gathering. And so Paul's saying, look, each one of us is building on the foundation of what Christ did at Calvary. And he says that each person must take care, to to have a care, to consider, to be considerate of. Uh, Philippians puts it this way. It says to work out our salvation, not work for our salvation, but work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God that works in us, both the willing and the doing of his own good pleasure. So the idea here, you know, Paul's laying out is that each one of us should be considerate of our motivations, of our consideration, and how we are responding to God's spirit since we're building here. And he says that each person's work, not just the church in general or just the pastor or the elder board or whatever, but each, every single person will be held accountable before God, that each person will stand before Christ and will have to give an account of why they built what they built. So he says that there's kind of two sets of building materials. There's wood, hay, and stubble, which is temporal things, things that rot, right? If you, especially here on the coast, if you just put wood outside, uh, unless it's pressure treated, (laughs) but if you just put wood outside, it rots really fast. If you just put stubble out, you know, hay or grass, you throw grass somewhere, it molds and it rots. And so he says we're, we're either building with these temporal ideas and things which correlate to worldly wisdom, or he says we're building with uh, gold, silver, or precious stones, which are things that uh, last, uh, in a sense, eternally, right? The metaphor is eternally, but in our world, they last for the duration of our world. Uh, even versus like you know, steel or iron, if you put a piece of gold on the beach versus a piece of iron on the beach, the gold will last a much, much, much longer time, right? And it's clearly it'll last longer than any kind of grass or you know, organic material, and so when Paul says, look, each of us are building in one of these ways, either we're building with our wisdom, we're using our methods and our ideas of, as just mere humans and the case he gives as jealousy and you know, uh, strife and these things, he says, or we're using God's wisdom to build. And so God's wisdom is the, the, the picture there of the gold, the silver, and the precious because it lasts forever. It goes into eternity. And we've been talking about that in the sense of there's ways that you can build church or interact with each other that we can get people to come or we can even get them to do what we might think they should do or whatever. But if we use worldly wisdom to do that, typically if you guilt and shame and force people into doing something, in the end they end up angry or with anxiety and and they're fed up and they leave. It shipwrecks their faith. But if we're building with kindness and with love and with patience these fruits of the Spirit, or fruit of the Spirit, then what we see is something that's going to last for eternity, as each person makes their own decision of how they want to contribute. So in uh, the second portion, we're going to pick up in in verse 16 today, um, because he's going to talk about, and and not just builders now, but now he's going to talk about destroyers. Uh, And we'll talk about what this means and how this can work out. Uh, in our lives, and then he has an application in verse 18 for both builders and destroyers. So let's start in. Uh, we'll start actually start off in uh, verse 12, where he says here. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple." Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So you can see in this uh, kind of the flow here of the passage, and I wanted to read verse fifteen for a reason because there's two there's two um, outcomes for builders. The first outcome is that you build with with gold and silver. You 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 build with eternal value and fruit of the spirit, and and that brings a reward. The second outcome is that we build with wood, hay, stubble. And again, just to reiterate from last week, I don't. Th- there's probably not very many people, maybe there, I don't know, that, that only use wood, hay, stubble. In other words, I don't think this is a black and white thing where you just go either you're a wood, hay, stubble person or you're a gold person. I think both. most of us are probably trying to build with some gold and somehow some hay kind of gets in there now and again. And, and then we have, hopefully when the Lord shows us that, we deal with it so it doesn't go until we finally have an account for it. But the idea here is that if you predominantly or anything that you do build with with, um, temporal things, it'll be burnt away, but you yourself will be saved. So the idea here is that a person can be involved at church or not be involved. They can be building on the foundation of Christ in a church or building on the foundation of Christ just in their life, and they can go their whole life with wood, hay, stubble. And he says that person will suffer loss, but they'll be saved, right? Right? Why am I bringing that up again? Am I really just trying to harp on internal security? No, because it's important for verse 16. Because this is an interesting verse here. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. So which is it? Do I build with, with wood, hay, stubble, and I myself am saved? Yet as by fire? Or am I destroyed? <laughs> and what does destroyed mean? And, and who is he speaking to? So as we kind of explore that question, first of all, I think it's worth noting this profound truth. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So a couple things about this before we go to what happens to people that destroy it. This this phrase, do you not know, is actually going to come up 10 more times in his letter to the Corinthians. And it's always... um, the beginning of a challenge. Does that make sense? Not a challenge like, like two bowls or something like that, but in the beginning of a challenge like, I want you to consider something. I want you to, to think about something that you're not necessarily adhering to. Does that make sense? So it's a challenge to consider uh, a thought that, about God's kingdom. Uh, and this is I, just to, to make a note about that, one of the things that uh, when you read, I don't know about you, you read books, you read articles, or you know, whatever it might be, you have interaction with people. I think one of the things that's really admirable about a person, and this is just an opinion, is that a person who, is, who considers things. We live in a time right now where do you not know is almost a useless phrase. Because if it doesn't adhere to our worldview or our thought process, or we think it's going to be boring, or it might just be too challenging, or whatever it might be, or we don't know how to respond to it, a lot of times we just shut it out. And, and we just shout louder than the other side or something like that. But it's important that when we find things like this, and Paul's going to do it 10 different times. He is giving important ideas about life. And he says, do you not know, and this is the truth that he reveals, that you are the temple. Now the, the word you here in verse 16 and 17, it's plural. It'd be like you all. So he's not just saying to the individual, although that may be true also. And there are other verses that support the idea that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, right? Uh, in chapter 6, he's going to talk about it in, in the sense of if you go and you have uh, uh, sex with a prostitute, because he's talking about uh, idol worship, or that's you know, one of the contexts here. It's also the dude who has a sexual relationship with his stepmother. But he's saying, don't you know that because you have the Spirit in you, that you're the temple of God and you bring God's Spirit into fornication with you? which is, is, We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 6. But, you know, in this case, he's saying, look, he's making a point that don't you know that the local church, the local representation of Jesus, however, you know, whatever biblical phrase we'd like to use, if we want to use body of Christ or called out gathering or assembly, you know, all the different ways that are used in the scripture to describe just a gathering of believers and he makes the point, he says, don't you know that that is what God's temple is? And when you think about a temple, whether it be you know, Aphrodite, who's rolling there, tons of temples in Corinth, they have a very something similar to the, the Areopagus there um, in Greece. But you, So you have these um, uh, temples everywhere, and, and the temple, the whole point of the temple, whether it was a false god or in the old covenant, it was what? It was to go and commune with God, right? That was the whole point of it. in In the Israeli temple, you had uh, that that 15 by 15 uh, box, the Holy of Holies, and then you had the extension past that, the 30 foot extension uh, that was 15 by 15, where it was the, the kind of the the outer place where you had the different furniture that was in, that the the priests used, whether it was the incense and these different things. But the whole idea is that God said to the Israelis, he said, I will commune with you above the mercy seat. So the mercy seat was the the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. Anybody seen Indiana Jones, uh, was it Last Christmas? Oh no, the Ark of the Covenant, the Lost Ark. That's actually a really good representation. So if you Google Indiana Jones and the last last Ark, Ark or Ark, whatever it is, Raiders of the Lost Ark, there you go. We know who watches worldly movies, just kidding. The, uh, <laughs> totally kidding. If you watch that and you see the Ark, the, 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 that's what it looked like. It was two golden cherubim, their, their wings are touching. And so once a year, you have the, the high priest who goes in. Uh, history tells us they tied a rope around his leg, and he walked in there, and he couldn't be sweating. He had to wear linen. There were all these rules about it, and he took the blood and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat, the blood of a red heifer. And God said, I'll, I'll speak to you, I'll forgive you from this place above the mercy seat, right? That's, that was kind of a, uh, the, the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, you know, all this. It led up to that reality. And so this, whether it's the Israeli temple or a uh, uh, heathen temple, temples are always supposed to be a place where you come to meet with your deity, Right? And so Paul says this, he says, I want you to know, he says, don't you understand this, right? They have all this stuff going on in the church, all the dysfunction, people are suing each other, people are, all sorts of crazy stuff. And he says, I want you to know something, or don't you understand this? That when you get together, because each one of you possesses the Holy Spirit in them, when you get together, you are God's temple, it's not about this building. It's not about the crystal cathedral. It's not about any cathedral that's ever been made. We know that, right? Even We're told over and over again, he says, I do not dwell in temples made with human hands. Even the temple was never designed to like, include God. In fact, when Solomon builds the temple and they have the ceremony where they commit it to God, what happens? His glory fills the temple and they can't go in it anymore. It wasn't that people were sucked into his temple, they were pushed out of it. He does not dwell in temples. And then so, you know, we are appreciative buildings. We probably appreciate our building and, you know, all the different things about it. But it's not in the building that God dwells, it's in our corporate unity together. So when, when the church has difficulties, when the church has schisms, literally tears or rips, when people aren't willing to uh, come together and to work through things, when people aren't willing to humble themselves and discuss things, when people aren't willing to, um, well, do exactly what the Corinthians aren't doing, if we could put it that way, when they're not willing to consider and adhere to the wisdom from God's Spirit, which is that I would lift up my cross daily, then the church becomes less than what it was ever supposed to be. It becomes a place where somebody who walks in doesn't get to meet with God. And I'm not saying that problems immediately, God just takes the spirit away. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that, you know, if you're in a mood, just, just think of it this way, really simply. If you're in a mood and you're in the foyer, or I'm in a mood and, and I'm in the foyer, and a visitor comes in and they, say, and they say, hi, you know, I'm from whatever, Seaview or Seattle, or what, and I go, oh, hey, yeah. Uh, yeah, welcome. And I turn around and leave. Is that going to be helpful or hurtful to their experience in trying to find God? Especially if it's an unbeliever, somebody who's unsure, but they're, they've hit rock bottom. They're trying to figure out their life, and they, they walk in because they're expecting to have some sort of ministry to them. But we're in a mood, and so we just go, yeah, whatever. That's good to have you. Coffee's over there. Or we complain Yeah, the coffee's over there. It's usually not that good. It's a little weak. It's a little strong. The worship's a little loud. It's a little quiet. It's not enough hymns. It's too many hymns. You see what I'm saying? See, a lot of times... Now, if you have an issue with coffee or hymns or whatever, come talk to us. Seriously. You're like, hey, the coffee's too strong. I can't drink it. You know, back in the day, our church started in Flint Wright's house. And when we started a church, I like strong coffee. And guess who brewed it in the morning when there were 20 people? I did. I brewed it strong. I remember Flint coming in one time being like, what is this? Why is it so strong? Come on. Put some water in it. So like, no. (laughs) So he puts water in it. You know, it's one of those things where, there are things, or you said this and I didn't like it, or someone said this to me and I didn't like it. All those things affect us, right? Jesus put it this way. He said, in John thirteen thirty five, he says, this is how every single person will know that you're my disciples, if you love each other, if you love each other, if you care for each other. See, that's what what our job is to do as Christians. Our job is that everybody who walks through that door to make that person know that they're loved, that they're cared for. You go, what about sin? We'll deal with sin. You know why they're here? Because God is dealing with their sin, right? There's nobody who just shows up. Very few people, I think, they actually just show up to church because they're just like, I think I'm fine. So I'll go to a place that's going to tell me I'm not. I'll go to a place where they talk about a cross, and blood, and salvation. I'll go to a place where they say that God wants to work in my heart. Nobody walks through the door legitimately thinking, I'm okay, except for, let's be honest, the religious hypocrite. That's the only person that walks through the door and says, I'm good, and so therefore I deserve to be here. No, none of us deserve to be with God. He's he's the only one who's good. So our job, Paul makes this really clear to me. He says, all the junk that's going on in your church, in your life, as it were, that you're not dealing with, not problems that we're working through, but a refusal to adhere to godly wisdom. He says, all that stuff, he goes, don't you know that you are where God lives? Church is supposed to be the one place on the entire planet in every church that that calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ where somebody can come and they can find the presence of God. That's what it's supposed to be a place of joy and of peace, of conviction, right? Where we see in our own hearts that how we've strayed or where we've rejected, all these things. So it's an important thing. It's a small phrase. But honestly, on a Sunday morning, it's one of the most important phrases for us builders to realize that what we're involved here this morning is not just coming to hear some guy yammer on about the Bible, sing some songs, and move on with our life. We're here to build. We're here to create. We all love reading about our revival. right? We all love to forward YouTube and, and, and all these you know, reports about revival and revival. But then sometimes we come to the church and we're like, well, I don't see any revival. This is lame. But we don't, aren't willing to take the very steps that Paul's talking about here to see revival in our own hearts, or to see, to be, to be loving people around us. And again, I said this last week and I can't emphasize it enough. So many of us, including myself, are waiting for this huge event. And you'll hear people talk about it all the, there's gonna be this huge revival. God's gonna do this great thing in, in, in the last days, and oh, this and that and the other thing, and maybe He is. But out of one side of our mouth, we say that. Out of the other side of our mouth, we say, I can't believe the worship today. I can't believe the message today. I can't believe what God's people are like. I can't believe this. I can't believe that. And then we wonder, why is there no contentment in our hearts? Why is there no revival in our hearts? But we get the, hopefully, the, it's a privilege and a responsibility and an opportunity to walk through the door, to even, honestly, when we give up, get, uh, get up in the morning, and to say, God, what do you have today? What are you going to do today? What do I get to be a part of today? Where this, where's the miraculous? I want to be part of the miraculous power that you say you have, that I've seen in the past. That's what I'm here for today. Not to insist on signs or miracles, but to say, Lord, I'm available for whatever your spirit wants to do. And if I come in and somebody speaks ill or somebody, I, I'm not going to take offense to that, right? The servant of the Lord must not be offended. Put that in our, that's a tough one. The servant of the Lord must not be offended. Meaning we don't get to come in here as God's servants and just be offended by everybody and everything. It's not what we're called to do. We're instead called to love. Do we have to accept everything people are saying? No, we don't accept it. But we're not offended by it. Meaning we don't go, ah, oh, ah, oh, I can't believe that. That's disgusting. That's terrible. We can just go, wow, that's of the world and it's destructive. And I hope those people Find the Lord Jesus. But as for me today, I'm gonna to serve him. It's a really important part. So he says, Don't you know that you are God's temple? This idea is, is actually supported again in First Peter and other places where Peter says, Look, we're being built together as living stones. That you and I were being shaped, right? This is a, an allusion or not an allusion, it's a allusion to the, the old testament temple where all the, the, the stones they were shaped and so forth at the quarry, and then they were, brought to, uh, they were brought to where the temple was being built. And when you look at Roman history, it said that the, the stones were so straight and so well built, you couldn't fit paper between them. They were, they were that shaved and, that, and the incredible craftsmanship of it. And so Peter reaches back to that idea, and he says, God's doing something in, in you as individuals to build something as in you as a corporate entity. Does that make sense? So our personal accountability to God, it will have effect on our personal contribution to where we fellowship. And it, so it's a responsibility in us. It's a thing that God's calling us to, to be part of one another, to be contributing to one another. Again, he says, uh, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four, he lays out and he says, look, God's given, you know, apostles and prophets and um, evangelists and pastor teachers. And he says, it's not, obviously not an exhaustive list. It's just a list of, of gifts that God gave kind of to begin churches, right? And he says he gave these gifts so that these people could build up the saints for the work of the ministry. It's, it's not a staff person's job. It's not a volunteer's job. It's, it's our job. It's our collective job to be building up one another in the faith. He goes on to say there in Ephesians chapter four and verse sixteen, he says that the body. So we have a local expression. There is the body of Christ, right, which would be the universal entity of every person who's ever believed on Jesus' name. Then there's kind of we might say our body or our representation here at Ocean Beach, or you know the representation uh, at uh, you know uh, I forgot the name New Life with John Tom or wherever it might be, right? They have their body. But, but he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, the body is built up as every joint supplies, meaning like part of it is every elbow, as every whatever. Every, as every part of the body supplies to each other, the body is then built up in love. So we build each other up. We edify. We, we uh, help, uh, well, build, create, form one another and visitors as we contribute to those people. And some of that is in uh, physical labor around the church. You know, Luke mentioned we're going to be doing some decorating today. Some of that's going to be the people that come and, and minister to children, you know, this coming week. Some of that is just every day, the, or every Sunday that we come together and we have an opportunity to speak words to each other. Uh, we have an opportunity to uh, shake hands or to hug with each other. Right? We have opportunity to contribute to one another. So there's all sorts of different ways that this building up is going, but it's all the idea that we are responsible for the church that we have. You know, I, I, read, I was reading, um, I'm still reading, actually. It's a great book. Tam just finished it. It's uh, uh, by a guy named Dallas Willard, and it's The Divine Conspiracy. And one of the, just the harsh statements that he makes is, he says this. He says, Your, whatever system that you have in life is ready or is, is producing the exact results that you're getting, or your system is set up to produce the results that you have. In other words, the results that you're seeing in your life, and my life, are exactly a result of whatever systems we have in place. Does that make sense? So a lot of times we can blame the system. We can say, well, I'm, I'm, this is happening in my life because of this, or this is happening in my life because of this. And, and obviously we're like governments or funds or jobs. That can be true. But oftentimes, if we're discouraged, if we're lonely, if we're those things, it's because our system created it for us. And and, and again, not to be a big jerk here, but if we hold out, for example, from fellowship with one another, and then we complain that we're lonely, there's a reason for that. And I don't say that harshly or meanly. When we pull back from each other, it's going to make us lonely, right? when we refuse to invest in each other it will make us lonely and we'll say we won't say it's my system that's failed in other words we won't say that it's the fact that i come to church maybe once a week or i mean once a month or maybe i maybe i don't take anybody's call and i make sure that i don't you know it couldn't be that that causes it it's got to be the fact that someone doesn't call me enough someone doesn't visit me enough and is there room for growth with calling and visitation in a church of course there is but when we try to blame our things on other people, we come to a sad place. For what it's worth, and I understand that the people can feel intimidated, and I hope people don't feel that way here, but if you're lonely today, you can always call me. My phone number's in the bulletin. It's 360-244-5558. You can always call me. I'm not saying I'm the answer to loneliness, I'm not. But I could maybe point you to somebody who is. You could come to my house and have dinner. You could come sit on the couch in my house if you want. Typically, we watch the office at night, so I hope that doesn't offend you, but, you know, or we can talk or we can do whatever. That's available to to every one of you. And there's there's not just that, there's other people. We have, you know, Tim Reed leads a whole home group ministry here at the church. And so if you're lonely or you're scared or whatever, there's an opportunity for you. You can contact Tim Reed. I don't know his number by heart, and I wouldn't say it out loud if I did, because I don't know if he wants to give it out, but I think he does. Go see him. There's remedies, because the church builds itself up in love. And so if you're feeling lonely, some of that might be because your church has failed you, because that's what churches do. They fail people. You know why? Because they're filled with sinners. Or some of your problem may just be because you have failed you. And you have made judgments about your church or people around you. And so you've decided, you know, or somebody you know has decided, probably not you because you're here, but you know what I mean? Like other people or times around, we've decided that they failed and that's it. We cut them off. That's not how the church builds itself up in love. Can anything be built that way? No, it cannot. We hold responsibility as well as the people around us. There's a, oh, we don't have time. We're going, there's a, a Navy SEAL retired guy. His name is Jocko Willink. He's got some really, he's never talked about his, his faith or lack thereof, I, I have no idea. But he's got some really good talks. And one of his talks is basically, I love it when things suck. That's the name of his talk. And basically the idea is he's, he, he comes forward and, and he says, look, when something's terrible, when something's hard, when something's difficult, he says, that's the time you press into it and you get your buddies together and you press into it together and you find a remedy together. And his, his general point of his 10-minute talk is essentially this, that, that when you push in with other people with, to things that are hard in life, you develop a bond that you would have never had otherwise. There's a lot more to be said about that. But then he says this, he says, look, that God's spirit dwells in you. And we've talked about that in the past. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. So we have to ask some questions to figure out what in the world does this mean? We have to ask a few questions, right? Is he talking about believers or is he talking about unbelievers? Because the verse, two verses up, he said, look, if you build with wood, hay, stubble, can we agree that building with wood, hay and stubble is building with useless stuff at the least, right? Can we agree with that? Is that something we can get into? That you're not building with any kind of eternal value. You're not building with any kind of attitude that God has. When we are building with bad attitudes and, and really more of a destructive pers- you know, uh, uh, perspective on things, he says, you'll be saved, but by fire. Now this next person, he says this. He says that if somebody is destroying what God is building, that God will destroy this person. So there's a couple options. Either he's speaking of believers... And we have to figure out what destroy means because it doesn't mean not saved, right? Because we just got told believers that do nothing with the gifts that God had given them for their entire life and build with wood, hay, and stubble, they lose. There's parts of their soul that will be burnt away, but they will be saved. So if he's talking about believers, then we have to figure out what destroy means, right? If he's talking about unbelievers, then we still need to figure out what destroy means, but it makes it maybe a little bit easier to, to deal with, doesn't it? The interesting thing is he says, first he says, Do you not know that you, plural, all of you, you guys assemble together, that you are the temple and you, the Spirit of God dwells in you, plural, people assemble together. Okay, So he's talking about the church as an entity in this point. And he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, the corporate entity, that God will destroy him, individual. That's not plural, that's the individual So some people say, oh, he's saying to the Corinthians, look, if things get so bad at your church and you continue to act in this way, that God will, will basically dismantle your church. Okay, does that happen? I think so. I think you see that happen. You, ha- you see it happen in church splits. If, if you have a guy, I know the ministry that I was involved in for 11 years when I first got saved. In the end, it came out a bunch of legalism. It came out that some dude was, had been sleeping with secretaries for years, stealing money, all this kind of stuff that had been going on. And guess what happened? It disintegrated. So is there an element of that? Sure, yeah. When it, where there's a, a large sin or there's, there's some sort of huge offense that takes place, Oftentimes, I don't know if God destroys it or just human beings go, ah, I can't be a part of this anymore, and it destroys itself. I, I'm not here to answer that. But we do see churches fail because of sin. We can, we can agree with that. The problem is that he doesn't say he will destroy it or he will destroy, destroy that particular part of the body. And there's, there's no plural to that. If he, the, the idea here is this. He will destroy the person who is responsible for the destruction. Does that make sense? There seems to be... uh, Well, let's look at what the definition of destroy is before we talk about that. This word is used a couple different times. For time's sake, I'll just give you the address if you want to write it down, and I'll quote it. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, the the same word is used. He says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So the word that's translated destroy in our text, here in verse 17 is translated ruins, in, in, uh, a little bit later in the same letter, in 1 Corinthians 15. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he says this, Your thoughts will be led astray from, from a sincere and pure devotion from Christ. So here, the word destroy is translated astray. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion from Christ. Lastly, and and there's more times that it's used. These are just different times. Does that make sense? And lastly, in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 22, when he's writing to to Ephesus, or possibly to Laodicea, uh, there's some some debate about that, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So in Ephesians chapter 4, it's translated corrupt. Your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desire, speaking of the old nature, that the old nature is, is corrupted, that it's not pure. So if we try to take the idea that he is speaking to believers here, the idea of what destroy means is also ruined, led astray, and corrupted. So is God saying then, that to is this kind of an allusion back to the judgment of losing everything by fire, and so therefore your, your soul, in a sense, is destroyed or, or lost? I don't think so. There's people that think that that are very smart. I just It's not where I end up. You have to make your own decision. I think this is the point. Later on in Corinthians and in Ephesians and all these other letters, there's something that every one of these letters has in common. And it's the fact that there are false teachers that have shown up to those churches and have began to taught things like continuing in the Levitical law, getting circumcised if you're a dude as a Christian, Making sure you keep dietary laws and you keep the Sabbath, right? As soon as people start getting saved, we read in Acts of a sect of Christians. And that's what they're called. They're called a sect, and they're part of the church in Jerusalem. And they are Jewish Christians. who used to be uh, Sadducees and Pharisees. So they used to be part of religious groups, specifically and more so the Pharisees. And so these people trusted in Jesus as their Savior, but they weren't ready to relinquish Judaism. Then from that, you also have another group of people that are called Judaizers, a separate group from that particular group. And these people rejected Jesus as Savior, but still held on to the Mosaic principles of the Old Covenant. And those people, what they would do is they would go around and they would preach the continuation. They'd kind of be okay with Jesus. But they, he, in other places, he makes the point that these people are not Christians. And what happens is they're going around and they're basically arguing with this doctrine, they're destroying what God is trying to build. So I would say that the destroyers, because you have builders, right? We read the builders, and it starts in verse 10, and it goes to verse 15. Those are what happens to builders, people that have the foundation of Jesus, and some people build with the right fruit and the right wisdom, and some people build with the wrong fruit, and they cause difficulty in the church. The people that build with the wrong fruit, with their own personal motivations, that will be consumed by fire, but they will be saved. These are not people that are building. These are destroyers. They're not called builders. They're not called Christians. They're not called any of that. They're just people that happen to be around the church, and they are destroying what's being built. You know, James, are you just trying to stick with your whole, uh, you know, um, eternal security narrative? No, this is what Jesus taught us. In Matthew chapter 13, and in verse 24, you can flip over there with, uh, if you'd like. Jesus tells us a parable of what the kingdom of heaven is like. He taught quite a few of those, but this one in particular. In Matthew chapter 13, in verse 24, he says this, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat among, with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will, let, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the whole wheat into my barn. And a few verses down there, it says in verse 16, or sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry verse thirty six. When the crowds went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, "Explain to us, um, excuse me, explain to us the parable of the weeds and, and of the field." And he answered, "The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil." The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus makes this exact point. And he says, look, in my kingdom, what's his kingdom? His kingdom is here. His kingdom is anywhere where he has authority. That's his kingdom. It's in our hearts. It's hopefully in our churches. It's what he's building here. And he makes this point. He says, look, when you are building, involved in my kingdom, there's something that's going to happen. There's going to be people among you that are not of you. They're not from the same seed. They're people that haven't actually received Jesus. How could this be? Is this so that we can be suspicious of each one? So we can go to each one and say, I'm going to need you to sign the statement of faith that says that you believe in. No, no, we don't have to do that. In fact, I find it an interesting point, and I always want to be careful with allegory and parables, but I think it's an interesting point that the reason the master doesn't pull the weeds right away, did did you catch that? He says, because when you pull those weeds, you might pull up some of the wheat. That isn't to say that they lose their salvation, but it's to say this. They're people that we know and love, and if we were to know what was truly in their hearts, it would stumble us to the point where we'd be too confused. So there will be people all the way till the end. Who are these people? These are not people that, that tried to get saved and were rejected, like some sort of terrible gospel. I've heard a guy say before, oh, if you don't feel saved, then you need to keep praying until you feel saved. No, there's no feeling saved. There's being saved and not being saved. Now, you may experience good feelings as a saved individual, and that's great. But I don't know about you. There's also days where you think to yourself, am I really saved? I'm so rotten inside. Am I actually a saved individual? That doesn't make you less saved. The point is this. The point is that the people that, aren't, that are in church, if you want to put it that way, are part of the kingdom that are not saved. They're people that are continually and have always rebelled against an idea of what? They need forgiveness. That's the core issue of salvation, right? That you and I are hopelessly immoral. That the things that come out of our hearts are rancid and that they miss the mark for what God wants for us, love. It's easy to say, oh, I'm not a big, bad fornicator, and I'm not a this or I'm not a that, but you know what we are? We're haters. We're judgers. We're short-tempered. We're, we just, you know, we say rude things, or we want to, and we hold them back. That comes right out of our heart, to want to dominate, to, to put down. We mock. Sometimes we, we even sit in church, and we can mock people. measure people the one place where God's spirit of love is supposed to be and we look at another human being and go look at that fool what a moron look at that weak person over there the things that that we will think or do and so those who we are dictates our need for forgiveness so when Christ came and he poured out his blood He died for us. He paid for us. That's what the gospel is. That his perfect blood and his body and life were judged for us. That God said, I will pour out my wrath on my son. That's that's the gospel. That's that's the good news. That's the, the reality of what's going on here. That you and I can be saved because Christ paid for our sin. So the bad seed is not the person who doesn't stop smoking or the person who wrestles with alcoholism. The bad seed is the person who rejects the idea of their moral corruptness and their need for a savior, but they go to church. So why would a person go to church if they are not willing to cop to that? Well, if you have a half-decent church, it's nice to go to, right? You know, somebody told me this morning, they were coming in, they said, I love coming here. I love coming here because there's so much junk in this world, but I get to come here and, and I meet so many happy people. Now, I think that person was saved. And I trying to say I think they're saved. But the point is this. If you have a half-decent church, when people walk in, they're going to be blessed. Because this is the temple of the living God. It's where his spirit is. It's where love is found. There might be a little bit of conviction, but that's easy for us to overcome if we're not interested in it, isn't it? You go, ah, I'll deal with that another day. Ah, I don't think I'm that bad. Ah, well, I don't know. I guess, maybe, but I'll have to figure it out later. It's not far-fetched to think that people that reject their need for salvation continue coming to church for a lifetime. How many times have we, as Christians, who have the Holy Spirit inside of us, not dealt with our sin? So why would we think that a a person that is an unbeliever could not come here and be part of what we're doing and help set up for VBS and, you know, whatever? I'm not saying, obviously I'm not making any commentary on anybody here. I'm just saying it's not far-fetched to think that people would just like coming here and they make friends and whatever. So here's the deal. What do we get from this? Number one, we're builders. Number two, there's destroyers. It's not our job to figure out the destroyers and sniff them out, whatever. It's our job to, to love and to walk with Jesus. If we see destructive behavior, it's our job to, to, to do something about that. Maybe not, you may not be called to go talk to that person. It may be too uh, intimidating, or you're not a, uh, a, a, a person who, who uh, can work through conflict. We're not saying what you have to do, but it's your responsibility to do something, and mine too, right? So we're builders. We're not destroyers. There are destroyers. And we want to make sure that we're careful how we build. And we want to make sure that that when we come here, we come here with an attitude that says, I'm here to serve. I'm here to build. I'm here to be part of whatever God has me to do today. If there's a hurting person getting coffee, if there's a hurting person in the in the uh, parking lot, if there's a hurting person after this, if there's, if there's someone, I am hoping that I can be part of the solution of their life with love and kindness. And you might be sitting here and go, I wouldn't even know how to do that. You know, sometimes just listening, just listening, hearing somebody who's going through a hard time. You know, just the opportunity, it's incredible the kinds of things. That people are carrying when they come in here you know that because you've done it and I have too and to just walk in here saying I'm not an expert and I don't know what's going on but you know doggone it if I can, if I can love someone today that'll be the church building itself up in love that's how we're going to have revival in our church that's how we're going to have growth in our church it's how we're going to reach our community as individuals committing to doing what God wants us to do And starting with just small things. So, God loves you. He's got a great plan for you. That may sound generic, but it's the truth. If you're lonely today or you're scared today or, you know, whatever it might be, come talk to us. Nobody's going to rage on you. You need a place to hang out? Come back and have some lunch. Help out with the uh, VBS. Or have lunch and don't. There's no... (laughs) there's no attendance for who helps and who doesn't. Come hang out with someone. The the, the remedy, I can about guarantee that the the remedy for any problem that any of us are having here is available here because of the gospel. And if you don't know Christ as your savior, you you, don't—you—you've thought it was religion your whole life or trying hard or whatever, I encourage you, receive Christ, pray about it. Lord, I need forgiveness. I see the moral wrong in my heart. And I don't, I don't want to face the judgment that's coming my way for that. I want to know you. I want to be changed. I want to be forgiven. I want a life of meaning, not just mediocrity to be followed by death. And at the end of the day, he says he'll save you. You can come up and talk to us about that. There's great things afoot today for the sake of God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your promises, your great grace, your kindness. Lord, thank you for this incredible journey that you've put us upon to be a helper of people's joy, to be those who uh, adhere to the word. Lord, that that your spirit through us would bring comfort, would bring conviction, would bring revelation, would bring, uh, uh, I don't know, love, peace, all the things that your spirit brings. Lord, we thank you for being so kind to us. We really appreciate that. And we praise you for just getting to be a part of something with uh, brethren of like precious faith. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.